right, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Philippians chapter four. If you don't, you can grab the Bible in front of you in the pew. We're gonna be on page 1042. As always, if anything comes up, if you have any thoughts, any questions during the message this morning, you can text them anonymously to the text number and we'll do a little Q&R afterwards. This is the final Sunday of our 10-week series asking the question at the beginning of the year, who are we as Revelation Church? What are we becoming as Revelation Church? And we, we've said quite a bit of things. We've said really our, our, our kind of core conviction is that God is not hidden, that God is a God that reveals himself to people and that we have the opportunity to know Jesus and to make him known. We also said that the reality in our life as Christians, if you're a Christian today, is that you've been adopted by the Father. You've been made a part of God's family, that you're loyal to the Son. We pledge our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ and that we're empowered by the Spirit for character and gifting. And then we shifted a little bit and we said, okay, this is the reality of who we are, but we're a work in progress as followers of Jesus. We are not done growing and Jesus is conforming us to his image. And so what are we becoming? And we, we've been saying that we're becoming people who live in communion with God. We're becoming people who submit to scripture humbly, who walk in honesty and authenticity, who steward with generosity and who pursue unity. And so this week, as we end our series, we're going to talk about becoming people who celebrate goodness and beauty. And, and, I'll, and I'll say again what I've said every week, this quote from Henry Nouwen, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. There's a reality about who we are in Christ, but there's still this progression. The, the Bible word is sanctification. We're being conformed into his image day by day. And so as we begin to talk about celebrating goodness and beauty, I want to play a video for you. So there's a video I saw on social media yesterday of a pianist um, fleeing her home at the train station in Lviv in Ukraine. There's thousands and thousands of people there running away from the Russian military, not knowing what's going to be left of the home yet to come back. And this person decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play It's a Wonderful World on the piano in the middle of this crowd. And, and the weird thing is, is on one level, 
that seems really bizarre, doesn't it? Why would you, why would you do that in that environment? But another part of me strangely feels, yeah, that's the right thing to do, isn't it? That's the right response to have. Because we have this impulse in us to push back against the darkness, in the middle of conflict, in the middle of pain, to, to lean into something beautiful and good. We're going to take a look at this passage in Paul, and he, he gives us this framework for dealing with conflict and strife. And he grounds it in this pursuit of goodness and beauty. Before we get into the text, I want to throw out a little theological background. Um, If you were with us last fall when we started the book of Genesis, you remember that we talked a lot about this word tov, this Hebrew word for good, Uh, In Genesis 1.31, we read that God saw all that he made, and it was very good indeed. Everything about the creation was good. The word tov means beautiful, pleasant, pleasing, lovely, suitable. And over and over and over and over again, this is the word that God uses to describe the world that he makes. It's good. It's good. It's good. But sin comes into the world just three chapters in, and it breaks the goodness apart. But the good news is that God, through Jesus, has come to restore the creation back to its complete goodness. The word that the Bible uses to describe that state is the word shalom, peace, Our key verse over Advent last year was Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. You might remember it reads, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Shalom. The dominion will be vast, and its shalom will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. And so Isaiah looks to the future at a time when the king will come and he will bring peace. And we have this idea of peace. We think of peace as the end to conflict. Right now, we're all praying for peace in Ukraine. And at the very first, at the very least, that means would the fighting stop? And that's a good prayer that people would not be in danger. That's a, that's a wonderful thing that we long for. But true peace, real shalom, is a reordering of the world around tov, around the good It's much more than an ending of war. It's a reconciliation. It's a unity. It's a pursuit of life. And this is what Jesus says that he is coming to bring about in the world. And so we get to Philippians 4. And and in Philippians, um, the background is this. Paul is in prison. The Philippian church is being persecuted. Things are not great. 
And to make it even worse, we read in Philippians 4.2, he says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Not only is Paul the great leader of the church in prison, not only is the Philippian church in general being persecuted from the outside, there are two leaders in the church that are fighting. Now, we don't know what the conflict is about. We don't know who these women are but they're definitely prominent enough, definitely high enough in leadership and authority in the church that Paul knows who they are and calls them out for causing conflict because it's a big problem. And it's in this context that Paul gives us in the next several verses all of these little pieces of text that we like to just memorize in isolation and put on coffee cups and hang on canvases in our living rooms. There's instructions about worry and anxiety and finding shalom. But it's important to recognize that this whole section of scripture and the text we're going to spend most of our time on today is in the context of conflict. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. The word rejoice means celebrate. Bring something to mind, share it with others. No, Paul, we're having conflict here. I know. Rejoice in the Lord. Last week, Jackson mentioned at the beginning of our um, singing that sometimes we come to church and we just don't feel like it. Singing seems like a really weird thing to do sometimes. Maybe because there's a war going on. Maybe because there's sickness and pain in our own families. Maybe because money is hard for whatever reason. And and yet God says, come into my presence and sing, rejoice. Why? Because it does something to our souls. It doesn't feel like it's time to rejoice, to celebrate when there's strife and conflict and fighting and anxiety. But Paul tells us to rejoice anyway. He tells us to pray. He promises that the God of peace will guard our hearts and our minds. So in this context, in this conflict, how should we be thinking? What should we be doing? And this is where we're going to camp out for most of this morning. In verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Listen to New Testament scholar Nijay Gupta's translation of this verse. He says, furthermore, my dear brothers and sisters, truth, nobility, justice, perfection, excellence, the spectacular, whatever showcases virtue and is worthy of respect, let your mind dwell on these things. Sometimes we read the word finally and we think, well, Paul's just tacking on an afterthought. Here's the bulk of what you need to know. And oh, also I forgot this. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, in addition to all that, don't forget truth, nobility, Justice, perfection, excellence. 
So the question for us this morning is, what are the things that we let our minds dwell on in order to diffuse conflict and mitigate anxiety? To dwell on something means to ponder it, to consider it, to calculate it. What do you fill your mind with? What's constantly in the background? You can think of all of our computers where we, we've got a, a, an, like a, maybe a word processing application, Microsoft Word up, and we're typing, but there's dozens of programs running in the background. Our minds are like that. We're focused on something, but there's things running in the background all the time. And when we dwell on things, they, it can look a couple of different ways. It can look like an obsession. We have a Rubik's Cube at our house. Does anybody ever, do you ever use a Rubik's Cube? I hate it because it seems so simple. Just get the colors to line up. But you just look at it and you twist it. And, and I, got, I got one whole side done. I'm almost there. But then no, in order to get anything else, it, it ruins the one side. And you just stare at it and, and hours go by. I keep thinking to get, I'm going to get a knife out and like pry the stickers off and move them around. I haven't done that yet. But that's an obsession. What's the thing that's just constantly on your mind that you're constantly thinking about? But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just a, a habit. Maybe it's mindlessly scrolling on social media. Post after post after post. And you get to the top and you refresh and the little thing spins and rewards you with a hit of dopamine. Maybe it's leaving your 24-7 news on in the background of your home all the time just for the constant noise. You're not really even thinking about it, but it's just there running in the background of your mind. If our thinking is not careful, whether we allow our obsessions to get out of control or let our mindless habits form us without realizing it, we are in danger Tim Keller writes, the things you daydream about in your spare time are often the things that have captured your imagination, and so are the things you serve. See, we can find ourselves actually giving ourselves over to idols by dwelling on the wrong thing. So what should we be dwelling on? Well, Paul has a list. Paul says, whatever is true whatever is real, whatever is honest. And this doesn't mean that we can't read fiction or watch films. Sometimes fiction contains a lot of truth. But I think the call here is to be discerning. We have to ask, what is the truth claim that this thing that we are ingesting into our souls is making? I have a I have a funny example, I think. It's, it's subjective, but I have a picture for you guys. This is a nativity scene. Um, this is a real thing. This is, this is a, something, somebody made this. Um, I shared this with my friends a number of weeks ago, and um, they said, this is oh, swolly night. Uh, one of them also said that Mary and Joseph are equally yoked. So, and again, this is a stupid example, but somebody went out of their way to make this. Is it true? Well, on the face of it, no, it's, it's absurd. But what's beneath it? Why, 
why did they make this? And I don't know, I can't judge, but in my subjective opinion, it feels like the nativity is this profound display of Almighty God becoming weak and lowly and submitting, like Philippians 2 says, as a servant. And this is kind of turning it into a display of worldly strength, isn't it? This isn't weakness, this is strength. And, and I wonder, like, what's the message behind this? And again, it's a stupid example. But do we ask the question? Here's another example. This is um, an old photograph that has been photoshopped. It's probably a picture of a dead polar bear, but it's been photoshopped to be a picture of a tardigrade. And who knows what a tardigrade is? Yeah, all you geeks. Tardigrades are microscopic animals. Can't, and they're just these little, tiny, tiny animals that you wouldn't know existed except for scientists um, with really powerful microscopes. And so if you ask the question, is this picture true? Well, no, it's also equally absurd, right? But when I think of what it's communicating, and again, this is subjective, you may think differently, what I think it's communicating is, is the reality of the existence of these animals. Because in this setting, when you, when you see this way too big version of this microscopic animal embedded onto this antique photo, it makes me think, wow, yeah, these are real things. Is that more true than the other one? I don't know. What's my point? We need to be discerning. We need to ask questions. Are the things that I dwell on true? The things before my eyes, before my ears, what I give space to my mind, what are they shaping me into? What's the message that they're trying to communicate? Because I guarantee you, every time someone either makes a ceramic nativity scene of uh, ripped Jesus or photoshops a tardigrade onto a photograph, there's a reason why they're doing that. There's a message that they're sending. And we would be wise, Paul says, to ask, is this true? Next, he says, whatever is honorable. Honorable means worthy of respect. Do the things that you dwell on dishonor God or dishonor other people? See, people, all people are made in the image of God. And when we dishonor people, we're dishonoring God. Now, there's a lot of really appropriate reasons, I believe, for being critical of President Biden. But when I see people on social media or in their front yard say, let's go, Brandon, man, that grieves me. And if you don't know what that means, I'm not going to tell you but we're called regardless of who the person is and especially the person in leadership, we're called to show honor. And it's perfectly valid to have complaints about our leaders, to think that they're doing things 
inappropriately or poorly or unjustly. And, and in many cases, we should stand up against that. But to dishonor people, it's just, it's wickedness. And it shouldn't be something that we as Christians participate in. He says, whatever is just, justice, fairness, whatever's equitable, whatever's right, conditions that make for God's shalom. Remember, Jesus is, is bringing his kingdom to earth through his people, and we are agents of his peace. So what are the things that are bringing about that shalom? John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York, who serves alongside Tim Keller, who's also a pastor in New York, said this on Twitter. Tim Keller said something to me in 2006 that I think about several times a day. We are exposed to so much brokenness in the city. We must constantly expose our hearts and minds to beauty. It never occurred to me to use beauty as a form of resistance. When we see injustice, when we see brokenness in the world, how do we respond to it? This is the example of our, our pianist in Ukraine. Things are falling apart all around her, and the stand that she makes, the thing that she can do is bring a little bit of light into the world with something beautiful. Saturating our minds with goodness and beauty is a way to fight back against the darkness in the world. To say, no, this is the way that people should be treated. This is what the kingdom of God looks like expressed in my life, in our city. And I think just an obvious question here for us, and, and I, I don't want to be legalistic because I, I recognize that a lot of us have come out of church situations where a lot of really oppressive rules were put on us about these kind of things. But I just want to ask the question, when we watch TV, when we watch movies, when we play video games, what are we bringing into our souls? One of the things I think is a little disturbing is how so much of our entertainment involves us cheering for or even embodying in games morally gray characters. You think about all of the popular shows, many of them today, they have a hero who's not really a good guy, but he's not really a bad guy either. He's better than the real bad guy. And you end up rooting for him. You want him to win, but he's also like doing pretty morally distasteful things. And I say this as someone that's partaken in a lot of that entertainment myself. I've played the games. I've watched the movies. And we, we say things like, well, it's, it's more realistic to have your heroes be flawed but not in the kingdom of God, it isn't. Because see, like our hero, our king is not flawed. He is good and perfect and lovely. And I just, I just wonder, what are we doing to our souls when we just marinate in so much injustice, and even celebrate it through some of our entertainment. And don't mishear me. I don't, I'm not saying that art always needs to be rainbows and lollipops to be good. 
But are we people that are asking the question, is this, is this just? Paul goes on and says, whatever is pure, whatever is innocent. One of the ways that, that this could be um, wrestled with is, are you being made impure by the things that you are absorbing? Are you participating in other people's sins? A classic example of this is, is gossip. By allowing gossip in our lives, we are participating it. And I've been in both sides of this situation. I've, I've been the one who's got the juicy details, and I know the particular friends that are just going to love to hear what I have to say. You won't believe what happened. You don't want to, you want to know what they did. And I've also been the person that just can't wait to hear the news. Oh, tell me how that meeting went. What did they say? And we rejoice in demeaning others talking behind their back. Whatever is pure. And he says, whatever is lovely, whatever is pleasing, agreeable, beautiful, or delightful. There's this um, Instagram page that my wife follows called Upworthy. Many of you probably know it. And they, um, they just consistently post good news stories. How amazing, right? Like... How ingenious of them. And I think about the, the evening news at the end of their broadcast always has that one story like, and now for some good news coming to you from Cincinnati. It's a boa constrictor and a parakeet who were puppies together and they're best of friends. And you, and you just think like, what a dumb story, but like that's all we can find that's right in the world and we have to share it with you because everything else is awful. But they know that the bad news sells better than the good news, doesn't it? We wouldn't watch the news all day long if it was just constant stories of people helping each other. Remember, we're talking about strife and anxiety. Learning about the 24-hour news cycle is pretty interesting. CNN came on the air. They were the first uh, station to do this, and, and they got... Uh, mocked for their idea. We're going to put the news on all day long. And everybody said, there's not enough news for that. But that didn't deter CNN. They just repeated the stories over and over and over again. And they dug deep to find obscure stories that no one would have ever known of to put in front of you. And then Fox came on and MSNBC came on. And so now we have all of these 24-hour news stations that are just constantly pumping out all of the wicked and evil and hurtful things that are going on in the world. And we want to be people who are well-informed, especially right now when, when so much is uncertain in the world. But we need to be people that watch our intake of this kind of thing. In verses 6 and 7, Paul says, don't worry about any, anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's some pretty significant promises in that verse, aren't there? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. 
I wonder, are we sabotaging that promise by the way we intake current events? We just constantly absorb all of the darkness and we wonder why we're anxious. We wonder why we're just kind of low-level angry all the time. Then he goes on and says, whatever is commendable, worthy of approval or praise, worthy of, of wow. You think about things that you go, wow. C.S. Lewis has this amazing quote. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. What Lewis is keying in on is this idea that when we enjoy something, part of our enjoyment of it is telling other people about it. We haven't fully experienced how great something is unless we let someone know. This is why we take a picture of the sunset and post it on Instagram. This is why we take a picture of our breakfast and post it on Instagram. It's pretty much why Instagram exists, right? But wow, did you hear the new album from so-and-so? Did you see that movie? It was so cool. Whatever is commendable, what is worthy of praise? So what, what do we share? What do we praise? What do we post to our timeline or retweet? What do you take pictures of and text your friends about? A.W. Tozer, writing in the 1960s, said this, if biblical Christianity is to survive the present world upheaval, we shall need to have a fresh revelation of the greatness and the beauty of Jesus. He alone can raise our cold hearts to rapture and restore again the art of true worship. Are we dwelling on things that either directly or indirectly point us to the greatness and beauty of Jesus? Now, again, this doesn't mean that we can only listen to worship music or only watch Christian movies. Most Christian movies are terrible. <laughs> Just my opinion. Um, Goodness and beauty can be found in a lot of different places. But Paul is instructing us to be discerning, to ask the question, what are you focusing on? So what does it mean for us as Revelation Church to celebrate goodness and beauty? In verse 9, Paul says, do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the peace of God will be with you. For Paul, dwelling on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable is not just a mental exercise. It's a practice. Paul calls us to do those things. They're not just things to be contemplated, but put into practice. And I've mentioned a lot of things that our hearts and our minds can choose to dwell on. Media, entertainment, and news, and 
gossip. But as a value, as a core value for Revelation Church, we want to be people that put goodness and beauty in front of us and celebrate it. And I think that at least has something to do with art. And if you've been a part of our church community for a while, you've heard me talk about this. And we want to be a church that recognizes the value of the arts. There's a couple reasons for that. One, arts teaches us. Scott Erickson, who, who did the Stations of the Cross artwork that we're displaying over Lent, he writes... He's talking about heaven. He says, our inner understanding of heaven is represented pictorially by many different images that, might not actually, that we might not actually believe in, but they have nothing else to place there. All they have are these pictures, these caricatures from culture to put in that place of understanding. The work of the teacher, the artist, the illustrator, the musician, the writer is to help foster that Im- inner image. What he's saying is he's, he's asking the question, when you think about heaven, Or when you think about the temple, or when you think about the life of Christ, what do you think of? And many times the things that we think of are things that have been imported from voices out in culture. How many of us have a concept of heaven based around what we watched uh, in Looney Tunes cartoons growing up? Little ghosts floating into the sky with halos on their head and wings, and little babies with little bow and arrows, and who knows what else. We get these ideas from outside. And and Erickson says, one of the things that Christians in the arts, what they can do in the church is correct some of those poor images and create better ones. We get ideas about things that don't come from scripture, they come from culture. And creative people in the church can craft things that can give us a truer understanding of biblical ideas. In the early church, many people couldn't read And so the artists in the church, they would paint pictures of Jesus and stories from the Gospels to give the Gospel to illiterate people. Erickson asked the question, does the church need artists to help communicate the story of Scripture to a spiritually illiterate culture? So many of us have understandings of who God is and what the Bible teaches that are profoundly broken and and misunderstood. And the arts are a way for Christians to use their gifts to correct misunderstandings about who God is. Secondly, the, the arts can heal. Beautiful works of creativity can often work in pain and grief in ways that bare propositional truth can't. Many of you can remember that one song that you had on repeat that summer that you broke up with your high school sweetheart and how soothing it was to you in that moment. Because the arts enter into our souls, into our pain in a way that just plain truth doesn't. That's why when somebody's hurting, it's just not wise to be like, God works all things together for good. Don't worry about it. Like, don't do that. That's true, but it's not helpful necessarily. Along these lines, Erickson says, often we need to be able to name our death before we can be resurrected from it. And by interacting with song 
and visual arts and film gives us the tools sometimes in the midst of pain to understand the brokenness in us so that Christ can work through that to bring new life out of it. So how do, we, how do we incorporate this in the church? Well, first of all, it's the songs we sing. As uh, myself and, and Jackson and Greg and the other musicians try to figure out what songs to bring to our congregation to sing together, one of the things that we ask is, is, is this song beautiful? Is this song good? It's not the primary reason we pick a song. We want it to be filled with truth. We want it to teach well but we don't want it to be artistically lazy. We don't want it to be less than beautiful. And so that's one of the grids we work through when we prepare music. Another thing we do is we, we try to express through the visual arts at high points on the church calendar. Like I said, we, this is the first Sunday of Lent. And we're going to be using the visual arts in our um, pre-service rotator to just kind of orient our hearts around the coming celebration of the death of Jesus. On Good Friday, we'll have a service that will be very um, artistically driven with visual elements and musical elements intended to help us emotionally enter into the place of mourning at the foot of the cross. Another thing that I like to do, I send out a weekly email and I like to just give recommendations. Here's a, here's a really good song that I've been listening to. Here's, a, here's an interesting piece of literature. Because while we are submitted to scripture and it is our ultimate authority, we are not just computers we are not heads only. We are whole people. And song and visual art and poetry and literature, they interact with our being in ways that sometimes propositional truth can't. And lastly, the way we interact with the world, the things that we dwell on, it shapes us. Harold Best says, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I ever can become in light of a chosen or choosing God. He says, we are by nature worshipers. We don't start our worship and stop our worship. We are constantly giving ourselves over to something. And all these decisions to pursue the good, to dwell on the beautiful or not, are our attempts to worship something. Maybe we're worshiping God. Maybe we're worshiping something else. Mike Cosper keys on this idea and says, because of this constant outpouring, we're spilling over with praise day and night, constantly testifying to the goodness and worth of something. Outside of Eden, outside of participating in the life of God, that outpouring is idolatry. We worship self, we worship money, we worship power and sex, we worship our spouses or children, we worship fantasies and myths. So there is a real danger here. 
how we spend our time, what we allow into our hearts and minds, where we focus our energy, it matters. Shane Wood in his book, Between Two Trees, says, every choice you make, you become someone different. Every single choice you make, you become something else. And this is God's work of sanctification. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've been saved by Jesus Christ. You've been adopted into the family of God. But your journey has just begun. And every day, every moment, God is working to shape you into the image of Jesus. And multiple times every day, you will be faced with a crossroads. You'll be faced with an opportunity to go this way or go that way. Sometimes it'll, it'll feel like a really big decision and, and you stress out over it. And sometimes you won't even recognize that there was a fork in the road. But every single choice that you make is an opportunity for you to walk closer to Christ or farther away from him. And the goodness and the grace of God is that if you choose the wrong road, he just spins you back around and lets you do it again. Because he's disciplining you. He's shaping you. He's making you into the image of his son. And and Paul says in Philippians, he says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So we don't have to worry as Christians if we're going to ultimately get it right or not. We are. He's going to get us there. But every single day, we have the responsibility to choose. Am I going to choose the good or am I going to choose the selfish? Am I going to choose the anxious? Am I going to choose the wicked? And I don't always choose right. So I find myself at the same spot I was before going, hey, didn't I, didn't I deal with this already? And God's going, yeah, you did. And you missed it, messed it up. So I'm going to give you another shot. And he's good and he's gracious like that. But here's the thing, you can't just refuse the bad if you want to be like Jesus. You have to choose the good. There's a Puritan author named Thomas Chalmers who wrote a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I'm going to read you an excerpt from it. It's King Jamesy. I'm sorry. There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so as that the heart may be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon, not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one." What he's saying is when you come to a place to where you're doing something, you're involved in something that is not good for you and you know it, you can do one of two things. You can just quit doing the bad thing. And for how many of us has that been successful? Or he says, you can replace that thing with something good. And he says, the only true way to divest yourself of bad habits, of dishonesty, of anxiety, of sin, the only way to really get over that stuff is to replace it with Christ. Replace it with something good. 
And this is the, the whole, um, whole practice of fasting during Lent. And I know many of us experiment with this during this season is, is I'm going to get rid of this thing that, that maybe is taking up too much of my time or too much of my energy or has too much of a control over my life. And you can do that and you can muscle through it for six weeks. But if you really want to be free from something, you have to replace it with something better. You can't just leave a void. Nature abhors a vacuum. If you, if you shut something out of your life and leave it empty, something is going to rush back in. Cosper says, this is why creativity matters. Creatives all around the world are already working to capture people's imaginations, but their goal is to win them over to a political worldview, a clothing brand, or a sports drink. There is so much power in the things that we put in front of us. And Paul says, dwell on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. As Christians, we need to be people that are dwelling on the good and the beautiful things. But we also, be, also need to be people that are making good and beautiful things and supporting people who make good and beautiful things. Because those are the things that we need to have access to in order to turn away from sin and to turn towards Christ. Let's do a little Q&R. Let's see what this says. How do you all of a sudden start thinking about different things if your brain is only used to feeling and dwelling on certain things? Well, I don't think you all of a sudden do anything. I think that's the beautiful thing about habits and the terrible thing about habits is they kind of stick, don't they? So if you found yourself stuck in bad habits, maybe they're just wasteful habits, maybe they're sinful habits and you can't get out of them. You want to just flip a switch and be like, I don't want to do that anymore. But that's not how it works. There's actually evidence that when you do something long enough, it creates pathways in your brain that make it, you just kind of default to those behaviors and those attitudes and those actions. And the only way you're going to get out of those habits is little by little, slowly changing day by day. And so you can't automatically all of a sudden completely shift your heart and mind into a new place. You have to slowly, by God's grace, incorporate new things to replace them. And over time, those will become habits that are easier to walk in. And I'll add that you probably need help doing it. If you're suffering through behaviors and, 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 and attitudes and, and practices that you want to get free of and you're doing it in secret, you're probably going to fail because we're not meant to do life in secret. We're meant to do life together.
And we need one another to help us walk with Jesus. Still totally inept at using this phone. <laughs> Side note, what's Lent again? It's a good question. Lent is so the for, for, for a long time, the church has had a calendar, right? And different seasons of the year corresponded to different celebrations, specifically around the life of Christ. And Lent is the period before Easter. Easter is the church's greatest celebration, the day we uh, celebrate Christ risen from the dead, our, our King and our God, the one who saves us, who defeats death and conquers sin, gives us new life. And Lent is a period of six weeks leading up to that where traditionally Christians have set aside um, something and fasted and mourned and considered the suffering of Christ. It culminates in Good Friday when, when we celebrate the death of Christ. And we actually, we sorrow in the fact that the Lord of life came to his people and we killed him. And in, often in our tradition, in, in a kind of low church, evangelical Protestant tradition, we, we push back against suffering. We push back against sorrow. And, and, and many of our, you, you, you may recognize that many of the songs we sing even, and thankfully we've, we've found some, some better songs as, as evidenced by this morning's music, but a lot of the songs we sing are triumphant and glorious and happy and good. And, and that's awesome. But that's not everyone's constant experience, is it? We are still a part of the broken world. We are still living with the consequences and effects of sin. And and the season of Lent helps us um, focus our minds on the beauty and the goodness of God, not, not after the resurrection, but before it. And how even in the midst of sorrow and pain and suffering, God is still working and Christ is moving That's what Lent is. I think we've got one more, maybe. I don't know what this means. It's not a question. Here's another one. Here we go. As an artist, how can you check your heart to make sure you aren't worshiping it? I think you ask the question, what are you making art for? What are you, what are you doing it for? Are you, are you making art so that you can satisfy some need for approval. You're making art so that people will know your name. Are you making art to prove yourself to someone or something? 
I think most of the time, artists are pretty reflective people. So if you're an artist, take some time to just sit and examine yourself. Why, why do I do what I do? I don't think everything that we do needs to be a direct, um, you know, musicians don't just have to write worship songs. Filmmakers don't just have to write movies about Jesus. There's a lot of creation that we can explore with the arts and a lot of good and beautiful things that we can create, but are you ultimately using your gifts to bring glory to God? Or do you have another motive? And the hard thing is, you're probably the only one that can figure that out. Because a lot of people on the outside look like they have all the right motives. But that's the thing about motives is nobody knows them but you. And even then, I'm not always sure we know our motives. David asks God to search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. And that should be a prayer that we all pray. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And if we find that we are worshiping ourselves or worshiping the art we make or worshiping the fame we get from it, then that's a good opportunity to repent, to lay that down at his feet and say, you've given me these gifts and they belong to you and I want to use them for your glory and the good of your people and not for my own purposes. It's a good question. So we're going to take communion, like we do every week. And communion, communion is a creative work. Jesus took a festival that was created by the Jewish people that told a particular story, the story of the Exodus. This, this, this festival, this meal, it spoke truth. It revealed God to the people of Israel. And he reshaped it into the continuation of that story with him at the center. It is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. This physical ritual that Jesus made for us. We celebrate it. We dwell on the bread and the cup. And we do this every week to rehearse the death of Christ through this art form, through this meal. And as we do that, as we remember him, it changes us, it shapes us. Or at least it has the potential to if we're paying attention. And so I'd invite you as, as the band comes up and we sing to just take the bread and the cup and take it back to your seats and dwell just for a few, a few moments. Just pay attention, not just to the idea of Jesus, not just to the propositional truths about Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. Those are mental boxes that we should be checking. But more than that, wrestle with the question of why Jesus wants to, us to remember him, not just in our minds, but through our bodies with the elements of communion. Why is it important for Jesus to say, more than just, hey, think about me, but instead to say, no, eat this while you do. 
See, I think Jesus is an artist. I think Jesus is using the elements of communion to help shape our hearts and our minds in a way that just the words of remembrance can't. So take the elements back to your seat and, and take communion when you're ready. Also, the prayer rugs are available if you would like to come down to the front and kneel and pray. That's nothing um, spectacular other than sometimes when we get out of our seats and change the position of our body, it helps us um, understand the position of our souls a little bit better. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.